As you open up to Psalm 139, we're going to be in the, the third and final installment of a series that we have looked at seeking the will of God, the will of God over all of eternity and the will of God for our lives. And we have seen this, and normally our, our, our practices as a group of people, for the most part, we like to open up a book of the Bible and spend a lot of time there. So beginning in January, we open up the book of Mark and the good news of Mark we've been walking through till we finished it just three weeks ago. And, and in the summer, we like to devote more of our time into the Psalms, which are specifically the Psalms and the, the hymn book or the songs and poems of God's people and the, the words and language of their faith and how God has interacted with them. But we have been looking at themes in the Bible as well as different kind of topics that we see the Bible speaking directly to, especially the ones that are directly at questions that we tend to ask, especially like this. What is the will of God? Does God have a plan for my life? And if it is, if there is a plan, what is it? So in Psalm 139, I want us to read all throughout this psalm. I want us to look at the characteristics of God, maybe recapping where we've been and begin to consider the possibility. The third principle I think we find is that God reveals himself to us through providence or through providential circumstances. What is that, you ask? Let's ask Psalm 139 together, and we'll read all of it together, all 24 verses, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word was on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you knew it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me, excuse me, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Through the four parts of this psalm, we see some of the characteristics of God and the way in which he relates to us and reveals his plan and will to us. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to look through some thematic principles throughout the Bible concerning how we seek out and follow the will of God, the plan of God. First and foremost, we saw three weeks ago, the most important thing we see is that God reveals himself through his word. God reveals himself first and foremost through his word. He has not left himself up there and out there hoping that you'll kind of seek and find him through some secret knowledge and you'll like crack the code and figure out who he is. God has forever and ever revealed himself through his word, through the inspired text that we call the Bible, where people have recounted and and written out and protected for centuries the interactions that God has had with him for the last several centuries. But if we were to wonder, even if that isn't enough, we have, do we know who God is? God has revealed himself through his word that he made flesh. That even in the beginning, that word that God was speaking to us was a word of reconciliation, a, a word of redemption in Jesus Christ. And it was in the very beginning. And even in the beginning, that word was for us. Before there was a chasm between us and God, God was already sending a word to draw us back. Before there was a, before there was a, a breach in the relationship between us and God and his righteousness and our sinfulness, God was already planning on speaking a word that would swap his righteousness for our sinfulness and our sinfulness for his righteousness in Jesus Christ. God reveals himself through his word, especially the word he speaks to us that is made flesh and visible in Jesus. But then you'll ask, well, I don't know all of the Bible necessarily. I don't understand all of that. That's, I'm glad you asked that. One of our favorite stories to illustrate this point is the story of Philip in the book of Acts, where we spent about a year in the book of Acts looking at what it means to have the DNA of a, of a first century Christ-following church. And you remember some of these stories. The will of God is unfolded there very, very powerfully. And I don't want to just simply rehash that. But one of my favorite stories is Philip runs upon this Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian is reading the text, the Bible, the Word. He's opening the Bible and reading the prophet Isaiah. And, and he's reading it aloud. And Philip, knowing the way of Jesus, comes up to him and he says, hey, do you know and understand what it is that you're reading? And he simply responds the same way you might be responding. How can I unless someone explains it to me? And the next thing we find is that in his mercy, God has not abandoned us to simply uncover his mysteries for himself, but instead he has sent people to speak his word to us. So we see that God not only reveals himself through his word, but he reveals himself through godly counsel, biblical counsel, people that speak according to his word. He's revealed himself through his word, and he reveals himself through people to the point where we now happily and humbly submit ourselves to people who are also under the influence of God speaking. We happily engage in relationships with people who are not afraid to hurt our feelings, are not afraid to, to hurt us or, or emotionally damage us because we believe that ultimately God has put them there for our good and that he will be glorified as we're shaped in our character and our innermost being by his word. But thirdly, and lastly, in order, we see that God reveals himself through providence. Providential circumstances. God's will is in his word. We can see this the way he commands it. This is a powerful truth for us. 
We can see what God wants and our response is obedience. In the same way that I shared with you uh, the last couple of weeks, if I told you, I commanded to you, wash my car, wash my car, you would infer, I think, pretty reasonably that my will, my hopes, my aspirations is for my car to be clean. Now, this is the beauty of God's word revealed to us in Jesus. You would especially know my will if after you disobeyed, you didn't wash my car for whatever reason. Shame on you, terrible friend, wash my car, hint, hint, right? And if you didn't do that, but, but I wanted it so much that I took matters into my own hands and I washed it myself, right? If I saw, okay, this person's not going to do this, the thing that I want, I'm going to do it for them. And so also we see the word of God and the counsel of God revealed to us that God desires for the nations to be redeemed and restored back into right relationship with him. So much so that when he looked at us and saw our disobedience and saw our inability to do his will, he decided to come in flesh in Jesus to do it for us. As if we might wonder, as if we might have some mysterious ponderings about what God's will is, he stepped in in Jesus to do it for us. Such that now the providence of God, that is the sovereign and guiding hand, the providence of God reveals his will to us. Most importantly, that God's will for us is to be restored in Jesus. So we see that God has revealed not only his will through his word and through counsel, messengers, but God begins to reveal his will through providence. His sovereign, this is how we would define providence, a fairly churchy and Bible word, is sovereign is sovereign and benevolent governance and guidance over all things for the purpose of being known and glorified by every living being. Starting in the garden that he would know and walk with his people, even though in spite of our sinfulness and we had one job and couldn't keep it up, he restores and redeems and follows along and never abandons us until finally in Jesus Christ we see the promise fulfilled for us. He is not going to leave us. He's going to be glorified by the nations. He will be known as a loving and gracious God. So when we say that God reveals himself through his word, Jesus, through his counsel, Jesus, we also see that God reveals himself through his providence, namely, Jesus. He has provided a way back to himself. Now that's the end of the story. About the middle of the story is where Psalm 139 finds us. In the midst of a broken and divided kingdom with sinful leaders and sinful people, and yet God, in His providence, chooses to work in and through them. And so this is a psalm we see at the very beginning attributed to David. David, who, even though he was considered to be a man after God's own heart, was quite the guy, an adulterer and a murderer. And yet in God's mercy, he still chooses to call this man David in his own heart that his heart would be like God's heart. So we find out that God's will is revealed in providence, and we see the aspects in which that is true in the four different sections of psalm 139 so let's just kind of walk through that you see in the first little paragraph the first few verses lumped together you see an attribute of god where we find the providence of god at work namely a phrase we call omniscience that is all-knowing god is god knows everything david's first celebration is the fact that god knows every single thing about him all the time and every place God, you search me. God, you know me. You search out. Before the word was on my tongue, you even knew all of them together. You hold me together. You hem me in. And the knowledge of this is too much for me to even grasp. And so we first celebrate the providence of God in his all-knowing being. 
He's able to control and have dominion over all things because he sees and knows all things. Here's the way I would put this. Nothing has ever occurred to God. Get it? Nothing has ever like popped into the mind of God because there's nothing that has ever existed that he didn't already think through, know, understand, and make plain to the world. He, he understands it. He sees it. There's nothing that surprises God. This is especially good for us because I don't know about you, maybe nothing surprises God, but stuff catches me off guard all the time. And even when I plan for it, even when I, I go, no, surely this, this is going to work out this way, I, I'm reminded that even my plans fail and things surprise me all the time. And I think you probably could relate to that. People, they let you down. Relationships, they fail to satisfy. And yet we see God here is not surprised by any success or failure in this world. The second attribute of God that we, we glean from this, the second paragraph beginning in about verse 7, is the omnipresence. So we just saw the omniscience, the all-knowing nature of God, but then we see the omnipresence of God. That is the ever-present nature of God. God is too big to be contained. His spiritual manifestation is infinite in nature. There is no place where you can go that God is not. And I would even argue the Bible seems to propose for us it's not just that God is in all places, but he is at all times. And so when we ask God about the future, we can ask him and pray to him because he's already there. He is present in the past, the present, and the future. He is everywhere. And so the second thing that David celebrates and he sings about in this psalm, this song or poem, is that God is always present with him. Whether he's in heaven or whether he's in the pit, the lowest of lows. Whether he's in paradise and everything is going great, or if it says he makes his bed in Sheol. That would have been an Old Testament metaphor for hell, used probably in this context to signify the worst of circumstances, the lowest of low. So that even in the most lonely and devastating circumstances, you and I can celebrate with David the mystery that God has not abandoned us but he has promised to be with us. If I get on the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Even the, your right hand will hold me. So not only is God all-knowing, not only is all, all present, but in his presence, he is also sovereign and he is sustaining. The third paragraph that David celebrates here, beginning in about verse 13, he begins to kind of prove the first two truths. He begins to kind of make a case for the evidence for God's all-knowing nature and his omnipresent nature. And the way that he illustrates it is something that is fairly important for us to think about in that God is proving his omnipresence and his omnipotence and his omniscience by the way that he has wired people together. In the dark and watery cavern of your mother's womb. Did you get that? God was working. And a thing that looks mysterious and in a beautiful and powerful way, we'll come back to this in a moment in the, when we end in the book of Acts, but in your inward parts, the stuff that works together is meant to draw glory to God. My frame was not hidden from you. There was no mystery. Right? I mean, just, again, begin to apply this to the way we understand even this, right? Like, God, God's never had to wait for the sonogram, right? God's never had to go, like, God's never thrown a baby reveal party, 
You know what I'm saying? Like, God knows. He understands. This is his nature. He, he is. He's a walking, talking baby reveal party. New life is what he does. It's what he makes. There's no mystery before him. It's unfolded. And the reason it's unfolded, not because he, it occurred to him or because he discovered it, but because he made it. It's that way because he did it. He made it that way. Now, I know there's all sorts of objections. We'll get to the, well, 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 well really? What, what about the flaws in me? What about the brokenness in me? We'll get there. But in the end, God has started this thing. It's his idea. There's a really cool thought in this. I hope maybe it will encourage you. Not because you're a princess, because this is where we usually kind of take this and make you, make you think you're special and a snowflake. But here's, here's the cool thing. In God's eyes, like, you were his idea. Like when he was looking across eternity, and he's like, you know what we need more of? You know, you know what this is missing? I see the pieces. And you know what popped into his head? Again, a metaphor that's weak and infinitely inadequate to describe what God does and thinks. But when he thought about the future and his will for the future and wondered what he needed next, you know what came to his mind? You. And he wired you together. All your quirks, all your nerdiness, all your secret nerdiness that you don't want anybody to know about. He wired that in you. And he made you wonderfully. So here's the beauty. This is, this is important. This is where typically in our culture we look in the mirror and go, you're good enough, you're smart enough, I'm special. This is what makes me unique. You're unique because of you. It's not the case here. It says that you're, neat, you're unique and you're special, not because of you, but because of him. Right? The value that you hold is not because of something you inherently carry. The value that you hold is something that he has empowered you with. He has imprinted you with, and we call that the image of God, the imago Dei. His own image is somehow reflected in you. He did it. The last paragraph, David celebrates the omnipotence and omnipresence of God in the midst of his enemies, such that we would know even in brokenness and even in the worst of circumstances, God is still on his throne and that he has enemies that work against his good plan. They don't destroy his plan. His will is sovereign. He has laid it out from the beginning. But he begins to mourn and weep. Can you resonate with this? On, on one side of your heart, you're probably like, yes, that's good to hear. God has crafted me and God is over all things. But, but, but we'll talk about this a little bit more. But I mean, if you watch the news this last week, this is where, this is where these words might resonate with you. Really, God? Really, everything is according to your plan? And here's where David admits that there are enemies of God. There are things working against God's good purpose. There is brokenness and sinfulness. But notice that those things do not destroy God's good work. But instead, God's work is done and accomplished in spite of them. So we join and we link up with God's own heart against that which is evil. And we have hate for all the things that God hates. And we then have love for all that God loves. It ends with a prayer. So that you might not think that you're again, you're a princess or a snowflake. It begins to reveal in us how we respond to this. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. So did you catch the mysterious nature of this? God, God, you made me this way, but God, still, please, reveal to me this way. 
I mean, I know you made me this way, but there's still things in me that I don't quite understand. I don't know why I think the way I do. I don't know why I feel the way I do. If I have the image of God, if I have the imprint of the perfect and loving God, sometimes I don't see it. So it says, if there's any grievous way in me, then lead me away from it. Lead me in your path. Did you catch God's good plan and will? His character and his understanding of all things reveals to us his plan, and then, and then we come in line with it, even against his enemies, but then and we ultimately humble ourselves before his will. Everything's been laid out, it says here. He knew before the words that we would say. He knew before the things that we would do, the limits. This is a theme that's picked up for the rest of the Bible. My favorite, if if we want to talk about what God knew before so that we would trust that God knows the future, we look at these words and we see that God is doing something and He, in his providence, that is in his benevolent guidance, his benevolent control is doing something. Ephesians 1 picks up on this, this idea of knowing before who it is that we are and what God is doing for us. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us. Again, not because you're a snowflake. In him. He chose us in him. His choosing and love for us is not in us. It's in him. He, even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ and his redemption, before the foundation of the world. Did you hear that language that the, psalm, the psalmist when 139 spoke of? Like Before this even came into be, you, you already knew it. He chose us in Christ, in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to the purpose of His will. Why? For the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, that is Christ. In Him, in Christ, we have now redemption through His blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, According to us and our goodness? No, according to the riches of His grace, which He now lavishes upon us in all His wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth, where? In Christ. As the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And now in Him we have attained an inheritance having been predestined again you hear that language according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory in him now you also when you heard this word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him you were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it for the praise of his glory. Did you, get, did you get all those themes together and what God is doing, what he knows, how he sees it, is playing out now in Christ in the way that he is, according to his perfect plan, decided to redeem people for his glory. So God had an option. God had an option as he looked at your sinful, rebellious heart and mind. He had an option. He's like, I can demonstrate my character to the world by pouring out my wrath on this deserving person. And instead of choosing to pour out his wrath and demonstrate to the world how just and righteous he is, he chose for you and me to demonstrate his glorious grace by pouring out his mercy on us. 
so that we would know beyond a shadow of any doubt that God is revealing himself to us, not just so that he can show the nations how just and mighty and wrathful he is, but how merciful and kind and loving he is. Do you get the language of that? The language of adoption. I know that hits home for some of you in this room. Right? The unmerited, salvific nature of someone choosing to call you their own. He did it so that you would know that he is for you. This is throughout the entirety of the Bible. Psalm 103, verse 19. We see that God is sovereign over the universe as a whole. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God is sovereign over the physical world so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is ruling and providing and having providence, sovereign guidance over the affairs of the nation. Psalm 66, 7 says it this way, We rejoice in Him who rules by His might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. God is sovereign over human destiny. Galatians 1 says it this way, The grace to you and peace and God, God from, excuse me, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God is sovereign over human successes and human failures. Luke one fifty two. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. God is sovereign over the protection of his people. Psalm 4.8 says that in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell and safety. God reveals himself, not just through his word, not just through counsel, but through the ways in which we see his work in the world. This idea, this belief that we have now, faith, faith in and confidence in in Christ, stands in direct opposition that the universe is governed by chance or fate. And so we see here that God is doing something. He's revealing his character. Ecclesiastes 9.11 puts it this way. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor rich, riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So even in God's will, there are surprises. And all we get to do is just be excited about the opportunities that leap out at us when we least expect them. Why? The same reason I, I do this for my children, sometimes our father likes to surprise his children. And we often are caught off guard by it, but in, in the same way that I would never surprise my children with something that isn't just ultimately for their good, so God does the same. So here's where we land. We now make decisions based on God's word that is shaping us, God's counsel through the people around us who are shaped by his word, leaning on us and pushing us and leading us and challenging us, but we also now are under the power of his sovereign hand and the guidance of his spirit. This is why when we get together, we don't cast lots or roll dice to pick what God would have us to do next. In fact, that's something that's throughout the Bible, casting lots. But do you know the last time in the Bible we hear a story of casting lots for what God's will was? You'll remember this in our, our, our journey through Acts. So Judas betrays Jesus and hung himself. Now we're down to 11 apostles. And so they set aside some men that they think will probably be a good replacement for the apostle Judas. And they cast lots. 
And this guy by the name of Matthias steps in. And a couple things happen. First of all, that's the last we hear of Matthias. That's the end of his story. And the second thing that happens is that we never hear of anyone trying to figure out God's plan or will by those means again. And do you know why? The answer is in the very next chapter. God pours out his spirit on his people. So that now we are not guided by dice, as we talked about last week, by magic rabbit's feet. We don't have any power in those things. Instead, now we are under the power of the Holy Spirit, such that we hear his word, we're guided in his counsel, and we understand that when we are under his conviction, the providence of God becomes manifest for us. So let me give you some tips that I think we can kind of land on, and then we'll end with a warning against the ways in which we do this. Now that we're under the power of the Spirit, if we're being shaped by God's ways and His Word, then we will naturally want and seek out things that are consistent with Him. And I think you see this in this chapter, in, in, the, in the whole of Psalm 139, the way in which God weaves us together. So here's, here's, here's the practical application that we land on. After we've, we've sought out God's Word, we've sought out godly counsel, biblical counsel, we begin to seek out providential circumstances to make sense to us. So here's, here's where we look at the providence and make our decisions accordingly. Make decisions in light of your giftedness. Did you catch the detail with which David went to describe how intricately God had wired him together? As if to say that what David was good at was God's plan. What David was weak at was not an accident. Didn't surprise God. So the same thing is true for us. Acts chapter 6 verse 2 puts it this way. It says that the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples because of a conflict that was happening between some widows who spoke different languages and they weren't able to care for them. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to God in order to serve or wait tables. Did you catch that? They, they saw their giftedness. The apostles knew that they had been anointed with something that the other people had not. And so rather than let the duties and services of the people around them hinder what God had gifted them to do, they sought out others who were uniquely gifted to do it instead. So catch this. this it is either pride or false humility that causes us to do this. One or the other. Either pride that makes you think you're entitled to do something that you're really not gifted to do. All right, so for us, God help us. Let us be the people who graciously and lovingly go, hey, I love you, but you're bad at that. You, you, see, you see that guy over there? He's good at that. You, not so much. And let us understand that that's in fact pride that wants to reject this. It's actually, according to Psalm 139, it's exactly how God planned it. Like, do you know whose idea it was for you to be bad at that? Get it? Begin to see this? It's actually his mercy. Because if you were good at all that stuff, you wouldn't need him and you wouldn't need anyone else. It's for the praise of his glorious grace that he made you good at this and bad at that. Romans 12.3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So that we're under the influence of God's word and under the counsel of God's people, then we see providentially that we're kind of gifted in certain ways and not others. And we make decisions based on that. So if there's an opportunity for God to work and it's way outside of your gifting, if you're the only one in the room, by all means, do it. That's not an excuse to be disobedient. 
But if you're weighing options and the way that God could be glorified in the way that he's knit you together, you choose the ways that he's knit you together to testify to his creative goodness. So when you've got an option between doing this, A or B, you seek God's giftedness in you and you run toward the thing that makes God look really good. You run toward the thing, you make a decision based on the fact that God has done something to draw attention to his artistry in you. The second thing I think we see is that we make our decisions not just based based on giftedness, but we make decisions based on ability. This is trickier, okay? Because the people who are really good at stuff, this is what I've learned and I've had to kind of swallow my own pride. The people who are really good at stuff make it look really easy. You ever notice this? My favorite example of this, golf. You just watch somebody hit a golf ball and you're like, what a, like a child could do that. And then you try it and realize it's the most frustrating, ridiculous thing on earth. And the people who are good at it, they work hard at it. And their ability looks like it's simple, but they make it look easy. Verse 29 of Acts chapter 11, it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers that were in Judea. So they saw the mission of God happening in a different place, and they wanted to bless them, and they gave according to their ability. They put themselves in a situation to give according to what they had been given. This is what this means for us, okay? It means that failure is not a bad thing. It's simply a reminder that we may not have the given abilities to do everything that we wish we could. If you don't believe me, come ask me about baseball, right? Because I say, oh, I love this church, I love you people. But you know my idol. Some of you know this. If the Yankees called me tomorrow and they're like, we need a center fielder, I'm out of here. I am. Because that's my idol. I, I, that's what I wish I had the ability to be and to do. Now, granted, I can tell you that because that's never going to happen, okay? I'm, 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 even in my prime, I wasn't good enough. Past my prime, I'm a has-been. And the more I tell you about it, the better I sound, right? I get better the older I get, okay? But here's the cool thing. While that was a great deal of distress for me and a, and a crisis of identity, do you know how grateful I am for that now? Like as I'm looking across this room and I'm seeing some of the stories that God is putting together and what God's doing in this room, do you, you realize how grateful I am to have failed at baseball? And this miraculous thing happens when we make decisions according to our abilities, God will bless it. The goal ultimately is to glorify God. The goal is to work this out in such a way that we're working together according to our abilities. If there was one person in the room who had all the abilities, then we wouldn't need each other and the church would fall apart. The body with parts wouldn't need members. It'd be a bag of hands. It'd be a a bag of livers. Whatever the body part you want to picture that you think you are, you don't need all those people to look like you. And when those people don't look like you and they don't talk like you and they think differently than you, that isn't meant to be a bad thing. That's meant to be a gift that God gives you according to your ability. You know why I'm standing up here preaching the Bible to you and teaching and trying to compel you toward the gospel? You know why? Because I'm bad at everything else. I'm working really hard just to not be terrible at this. And I need you. And whether you want to admit it or not, beyond false humility or pride, you need me. Third thing I want to point to you, maybe not just that we make decisions according to our giftedness and our ability. Again, this is measured in biblical sense. Like if so, you're like, I have the ability to like murder people in cold blood. Okay, then according to God's word, that's not a good thing. 
Um, and so that ability is invalid, right? But, but according to our ability, according to our giftedness, the thing, next thing I think we see is we make our decisions according to an overall strategy. The best place to see this is in the book of Acts. This plays out in 2 Corinthians 1. Paul talking to this church, he says, I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. So he wants to go to hang out with the Corinthians. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Remember, because they're sending people according to their ability to Judea to bless what God was doing there. Verse 17, it says, was I vacillating? That is, was I wavering on two options when I wanted to do this? Do I make my own plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, we know that it is, the answer is yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. So did you catch the words there? I'm going to kind of delineate that for you. He, he wanted to go see these people, but an opportunity came for him. Do you remember this? The Macedonian call to take the gospel to Europe, the first step toward making the gospel cross into the continent of Europe that crossed over the continent that made it to where now you're hearing it here in an elementary school in Sioux Falls. That, that first step came from a call that altered Paul's plans. His plan was to make the gospel known amongst the Gentiles. And though he wanted to go hang out with the people at Corinth, which would have been a good thing, his overarching plan to see the gospel go to the nations, to the places, as he says in the book of Romans, that had not heard the gospel, since that was his overarching calling and plan, he made a decision according to it. So yes, make room for God to change your plan, but that is not an excuse for you to not have a plan. You have to have a plan for the Holy Spirit to change it. Paul had a plan to glorify God by being a herald of the gospel to the nations, people that had never heard of Jesus before. Therefore, the decisions he made were the result of where he saw his gifts, where he saw his abilities, and where he saw his overarching calling leading him to go. So as we make our decisions, I want you to analyze with a group, under God's word, your abilities, your giftedness, and then the plan that God has given you, the way that he's wired you to bring him glory. Now beware. This may mean that you lose that promotion you want. This may mean that that friendship you're investing in may fail. This may mean that you will have to make a difficult decision against what seems comfortable for the sake of being where God has called you. He has wired you, imprinted himself upon you, and created you in his image to glorify him for his mercy. And that may mean you have to say no to some really good things for the, saying, for the sake of saying yes to the greatest thing that gives him the most glory. I know what I'm asking. To embrace this and embrace God's will for our life means to make decisions that are difficult. So lastly, and I mean lastly, and I'll end with a warning over the top of this, lastly, make your decision according to the circumstances. Lastly, if the opportunities present themselves, make the decisions that seem like the best opportunities that glorify God the most. Jonathan Edwards had one of his convictions, one of his resolutions that I recommend every person read at least once or twice a year, resolve to do whatever 
in his own ability, he was able to do for the utmost glory of God and the good of the people around him. Do what glorifies God the most. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and he circumcised him. This is Acts 16, verse 3, because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So what did he do? He saw the circumstance and something he normally wouldn't have done, namely circumcise someone because he had some convictions about religious practices that got in the way of believing the gospel. But it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, that Paul, when he saw the circumstances that there were people who were Greek, and this man not being looking like and acting like a Greek and, and looking like a religious person might be a hindrance to the gospel going out, he responded to the circumstances by doing something different. Now, of course, he did that under the auspices of God's word being his guide, being the Holy Spirit that changed him, was leading him away, his plan and his ability and his gifting. But when he saw the circumstances, he had freedom. First Corinthians 16 says it this way. It says, I'll visit you, Paul talking. I'm going to visit you after passing through Macedonia. This is him telling his plans that failed. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. So this is 1 Corinthians. The one I just read before was 2 Corinthians. This is the preview. He says, I, I wanted to, but I will stay in verse 8 in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. So an opportunity to glorify Christ presented himself and he took it. And he had the freedom to do so. I'm reminded of this. We the last final thing we see is this picture of divine intervention that jumps in. And I want to tell you about it because we expect it and we hope God to do miraculous things, but we never count on it. It is a rare thing, right? So God revealed himself in one of my favorite stories in the book of Numbers. Um, there's a bunch of cool metaphors here. Um, a guy by the name of Balaam who was kind of a good, kind of a bad priest, kind of a good, kind of a bad prophet. And he's walking along and God doesn't want him to go where he's going. And so Balaam on his donkey, like, is deterred because the Spirit of God tells the donkey to stop going. And then the donkey starts talking to Balaam. And then Balaam has this argument with the donkey. And the donkey's like, when I'm, I'm not going. And he starts talking to the donkey as though, that, like, as though he would, like, if a donkey talked to you, you wouldn't immediately go, what? I mean, and run the other way. But, but, but this happens, and, and it's a rare occasion in which God intervenes by divine intervention to shape the will, to shape the path that this person's on. He does it again for Paul. Saul was walking on the way to persecute Christians. Jesus intervened and jumps and stops, and so for the glory of grace, he blinds him and sends him somewhere else. So it happens. We expect it to happen. We pray for it to happen, but we never count on it to happen. We obediently submit to his word, to his people, and to his providence in the meantime. This is what it looks like in my house. I was reminded of this, okay? So I tell my, my messiest daughter, who I relate to greatly, because if you're going to play with something, just get it all out, right? Let's get all the toys out at once and play with them all at once. And this is a mess in the room, and I said, hey, um, you start cleaning up in here, and, and I'll be right back, and I'll help you finish, right? You start cleaning, and I'll be back to help you finish. Now, you know exactly what happened. She began to count on my return. And so you know what she did? nothing. She did nothing. I walked back in and it's just as messy as I began. And what a beautiful picture of how often we just kind of sit back and wait for the circumstances to dictate what we ought to do. And what a good reminder. 
We are called to be obedient, submit to his word, submit to his people, submit to his providence. And if he happens to jump along and blind you on the way to Damascus, great. Let him be glorified in it. But in the meantime, we graciously and humbly submit to his word, to his counsel, to his providence. We don't let miraculous circumstances dictate everything. Why? Because in the end, if we're discerning God's will only by the circumstances, then we always get it wrong. Because you can only see the circumstances in your immediate consciousness. You can only see the six inches in front of your face. So just map this out in your own head. We're saying that biblically the theme seems to be our, the word of God is his will, guided to us by counsel and then by divine providence, okay? The circumstances. So God's word, godly counsel, and then the circumstances last. Now, I want to put that out there so you begin to think about the way that most people who call themselves believers think they find God's will. They do it completely opposite. They look at their circumstances first, and then when they're perplexed, they go to somebody like you and they go, hey, what should I do? And then lastly, when they're like, oh no, I don't know what to do, they do one of these. You've seen these? Like, oh, oh. And, and whatever we find, we assume that's the thing that God wants us to do. Never mind that it may be like, I don't know, I just, I just opened the book to Simon and his mother-in-law. Well, maybe I have a ministry to mother-in-laws. That's not how this works. And do you see how self-absorbed and self-centered that is? Do you see the idolatry that emerges in trying to find God's will in our own circumstances? That'd be like me trying to get to know you by staring at the mirror. How silly would it be? So if you make your decisions based on sinful circumstances, you will always get a sinful result. So let me speak very boldly to this. Show me grace in this because I'm learning to do this better. If you're simply weighing the options before you and you're simply choosing between broken circumstances to see the will of God, then you will always get a broken result. And the events of this past week demonstrate that palpably, don't they? If you let your circumstances and environment dictate your character and response, awful, broken things happen. And so we are called to actively and to, to penetrate lostness with the good news. We are to act. We don't just sit there and respond to the circumstances given to us. We are shaped in our character by God's word. We are guided by counsel. And then we go and we live out God's will actively. Because the truth is, and I empathize with this, if you're a white police officer in America today, you look at a black man with a gun, and the circumstances will tell you that shooting him is a good idea. And if you're a black man in America, given the history of our country, and you look at a police officer, a white officer with a gun, you will think that shooting him is a good idea as well. And you will justify all of these things by the circumstances. Friend, don't judge these circumstances too harshly. You and I regularly make the same kinds of decisions based on fallen circumstances, not on God's will and his word, and we cause irreparable harm to the people around us. We idolize our own experience. And instead of looking to God's word to be our norm and be our guide, we just look at our own experiences. We look at our own feelings. We see our own intuitions. 
We let our impressions be our guide. This is simply a form of American individualism. It's good to express emotion. Self-expression is very good. But when you make expressing yourself more important than the Word of God, then functionally you've put it higher than God's will and it's an idol. This is a logical fallacy. It's emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning. You assume that since you're hurt emotionally, something must be broken, not realizing that it might be you that are broke that's really broken. And you'll say, just like the events of this last week, but I feel blank. But you don't understand. The circumstances dictated that I do that. Be careful. That is your idolatry talking. We are called differently. We are called to be a people that mourn with those who mourn actively. We are those called to bear one another's burdens. We don't just wait for circumstances to dictate conveniently what we think we should do. If we let circumstances rather than God and his word drive our lives, then you'll simply sit back and wait to be served. You won't mourn with those who mourn. And you'll sit there and wait. And some of you right now, you're incredibly frustrated with your relationships because you're waiting. You're waiting for your network or your community or your church. You're waiting for all of them to just serve you. You've elevated your own experience to the point that now you're just sitting around waiting for them to come to you and waiting for the circumstances to happily play out in front of you. Forgetting the fact that God has gifted you, he's equipped you, called you, and sent you. You're to be poured out for all of these people. Some of you are sitting back waiting for the perfect circumstances. You're, you're waiting. You're like, you, you don't want to give to the church and the mission of God's church because you're waiting for like winning the lottery. And you think like if the circumstances come in, into play, well then, then I could be generous. Some of you are waiting. You're waiting. Some of you right now, you're putting, you do, some of you need to be baptized. And you're, well, I'm waiting for the right time. Don't let the circumstances dictate your decisions. Because if you're just waiting for your circumstances to perfectly align, they don't. Like if you're waiting until you can afford to get married or afford, uh, or you're ready emotionally to get married, or you're like, you can afford to have kids, here's what I can tell you from the other side of both of those. You never are. Like, I think I'm doing it good, and I'm just now not being terrible at it. It's taken me 10 years. I'm just now figuring it out. If I'd have waited till the circumstances, circumstances dictated a perfect setting, I don't think we'd be here. This means that for us, silence in the place of injustice doesn't make you pious. It makes you complicit. And to let the circumstances dictate your silence rather than speaking God's truth into the world is actually implying that God is not really sovereign. And all the while, you're waiting on God to open up opportunities, and he's waiting on you to respond obediently to his word. I can't stop you or anyone else from posting unloving and awful things on social media. but You can't stop me from speaking the truth of God's word that calls us to be something different in this world. I'm going to wrap up in Acts chapter 17, and I want you to see where we kind of land on this. You don't have to join me there, but I'll, if you do, I want you to see the ways in which God's will becomes unfolded for us, and the circumstances we talk about are ultimately unfolded for you right now. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 24, Paul is preaching to the people in Athens, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by men. He's bigger than you in your circumstance. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, like he needs your help to do his will. He does it by himself. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God has done this. He's allotted this for us. He's done this for us. And you would ask yourself, why? Why has God done this? Why has God ordained the circumstances? It says in verse 27, he's ordained these circumstances so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. This is especially for you mothers here. We just, we just talked about how David praised God because he was uniquely put together in his womb. Listen to, to the language that Paul gives to mothers in verse 28. He says, quoting, quoting the words of Jesus, we presume here, it says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's a powerful truth, especially for mothers, because even as some of you, our own poets, have said, you are indeed his children. So then being God's offspring, being God's children, we ought not to think that the divine being is like a gold or silver stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God have been overlooked, but now he commands that all people everywhere repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that is Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Did you catch that? It is God's will and providence that you would seek him, in verse 27, and find him. So here's where I'll end. Whatever the case, whatever brought you into this place, and that's especially important because some of you have come a long way to be in this room. Whatever those circumstances might have been, they have brought you here so that you would seek God and find Him. He's not hiding from you. In fact, He's brought you here. So just stop for a moment. Think about the circumstances that have put you in this room. How'd you get here? Think about it. Who invited you? What a, what a weird place to be in an in a elementary school. It's humid in here. It's summer, right? Some are in here, some are out there. You're like, this, why am I here? Have you thought about, like, think about the circumstances that, that unfolded for you to be here, to be hearing God's word and his counsel about his providence. Just think about that. And consider the possibility that all of those circumstances have unfolded so that in this moment you would hear the good news that if you seek God in Jesus Christ, you find him. If you seek him, he draws you to him and you find him. Thank God for his word that he gives us a task and an identity and character shaped by him. Thank God that he puts people around us to shape us, but also thank God that in spite of all of those things, sometimes he weaves the circumstances in such a way that the good news is made visible for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. Uh, we confess that we do not deserve it. God, we've, we've bitten off more than we can chew here. Uh, there's more than the mind can begin to understand when we begin to try to understand your will. Uh, there's more than our own creativity and imagination and intellect can contain. But would you begin to revive in us a sense of anticipation that you want to speak to us and your word. You want to use your word to speak to us through the people in our midst. 
And then you want to guide us with the opportunities you give to us. Help us to no longer see those opportunities and circumstances around us as simply obstacles or little trinkets that make us feel better about ourselves, but help us to begin to realize that these opportunities and circumstances around us are unfolding so that we would experience your grace. I I pray especially when we see the brokenness unfolding on the news. When we see the brokenness and anger and hatred unfold for us on the news, instead of simply mourning it and feeling helpless, would we see that as an opportunity that you have presented to us to share the gospel that there is hope? Now that we have been reconciled to you, God, would we see the brokenness in our world as an opportunity to be in the ministry of reconciliation that you've entrusted to us? The broken circumstances that exist in our world are no surprise. They're just the consequences of broken and awful decisions. Decisions even that we've made and we're complicit in. So begin to open our eyes to the possibility you're doing something for our good, for your glory. You've revealed it to us. You're not mysterious and hiding from us, but you've made it manifest in Jesus. And it's possible that today you have called someone in this room to this very spot that they would for the first time trust you, believe in you, and confess that you are Lord over all circumstances. And that to know you and to be found in you is greater than any environment or circumstance that we can imagine. Jesus, we thank you for this. Amen.